Well, I've got good news and bad news. Which one do you want first? The bad news, right? Yeah, that's what we usually say when uh, someone says, I got good news and bad news. Imagine if you went to a doctor and he gave you the good news first. He said, hey, I have a cure for you that's 100% effective. Um, you know, if, if you take this right now, everything's going to be just fine. You might be a little confused because you don't think that there's anything wrong with you because he gave you the good news first. But if he came to you and said, you know, I can see clearly that there's something going on here. The blood work has confirmed it. The x-ray has shown it. Uh, everything is confirmed. If things keep going with this infection the way that it is, there is not a chance that you're going to be around much longer. And you start to get a little worried. But then he, if he were to say, hey, but you know what? I've, I've got this cure that... Uh, you know, if you take it, within two weeks, you're going to be back to normal. Well, which one would you dwell on most at that point if he gave you the good news last? Well, the good news, right? Man, I could have died if I wouldn't have sought help, but yet with this, uh, with this whatever the doctor gave me, this, this procedure, this medicine, life is good again because he gave me the good news after giving me the bad news. And for the past few weeks, we've been laying this concrete for... Uh, the uh, church structure remodel, and in our passage today, Paul wants us to understand and know the bonding agent by which this foundation is, is held together through something called the gospel. And the gospel literally means good news. It is the good news of uh, what Jesus has done in his person and work and, and living sinlessly, dying vicariously, rising victoriously, and now ascending in glory and reigning in that way. The gospel is so central to the foundation of the church that if we as a church um, do or don't, to the extent by which we understand the gospel is the extent on which our church stands or crumbles. We need to be firm on what the gospel is. And if you don't know what the gospel is, or if you're not able to define it, well, today is your day. Because the passage that we're looking at today is an exposition, which is a big word for explaining the gospel, the good news. In only 10 verses, he details the very thing that us Christians hang our hats on. But in order to see how the gospel truly is good news, we have to face the reality of some really terrible news. In order to see the goodness of God and who he really is, then we must reflect first on what we were before he intervened. So the first thing today in this passage that we see is that we need to remember who we were. Remember who we were. In verse 1, Paul gives this chilling indictment on the human condition he, what he writes here is universal to every person from birth. He writes in the past tense because he is writing to uh, people who are already Christians. But if you're not there yet, if you're not in Christ yet, you aren't a believer, haven't put your faith in him, then verses 1 through 3 is your current state. So it's not only sobering to personalize what he writes here, but it's crucial that you and I personalize what Paul is saying to understand the rest of the passage here. 
So don't gloss over these words. Take them to heart. This was you. This was me. This is some of us right now here. He writes in verse 1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. This was the way of life for us. This is life for some of us right now. You may have been or may be breathing oxygen right now. Your heart may be pumping blood throughout your circulatory system right now, but you are dead. Not physically, but spiritually. This is how you were born. You didn't choose this. This is who we are by nature. We're not spiritual zombies. We're spiritual stillborns. We came into this world dead with a hunger for life and desperately trying to find it in all these places that only further brought us lower and lower into the grave. And Paul documents this cause of death by using two words, trespasses and sins. Now, if you drive anywhere in the country where someone has a lot of private property, you're going to see signs stapled or nailed to a tree that says, posted, no trespassing. And any, every one of us knows what that means, right? There is a line that is drawn that at one step you are on public property. But if you take one step further, you are on private property and you are trespassing into that person's, um, that person's property. Now, God wrote the law as a property line for who we should be and what we should do. And every one of us have not only come to the edge of that line, we have trespassed it. We have gone across that line. We've gone beyond the, bo- the boundaries that we ought to have gone through. And then the other cause of death, Paul writes here, says that we were walking in sin. To sin is to miss the mark. It is an archery term. Now imagine with me, you're, you're 100 yards away, 50 yards away, and you get an archery, uh, the, the bow and the arrow, and you wind it back. The goal is what? It's not just to hit the target. It's to get the bullseye, right? Like that's the goal, but you wind it, you aim it, you let it go, and your arm stings a little bit because you're not wearing that pad. And the arrow doesn't even hit the target. It falls in the grass about 25 yards before the target. That's what Paul is saying here. We are morally. That's what sin is. That is the lifestyle that we walked in. Those two things, now Paul tells us, were carried out in three ways. Notice in verse 2, it says that it was following the course of this world. World, in this instance, is the patterns of our culture. It is the, the ways of the world, the social norms, the values of this, this world. It is the um, things that are antithetical to God and his way. And it is to, to go along with it, to be part of it. Not only that, but also to progress it, to promote it. It is to value the things in this world and devalue the things of God. This was our delight. The second way it's carried out, notice, is by following the prince of the power of the air. 
But Paul is very sensitive to the Ephesians. I mean, we've talked about this a lot, and, and that the Ephesians uh, were very in tune with the idea of a spiritual realm, that there are things all around us that we cannot see. And it's in this realm that they communicated, or so they thought, with the astral spirits, the deities that they worshipped. It is from this realm that they believed that power came from, that they could manipulate the gods and the deities in order to get the, the victories that they wanted, for good or for evil. Now notice Paul does not deny that there is a spiritual realm. He has already made note of it back in chapter 1, and though we don't like to talk about it very much in our culture, and our culture tries to deny it, there is an unseen reality going on around us right now. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, that Satan is the god of this world. Not a capital G, small g, because he's ruling over it. And here, he ha uh, Paul's alluding also to his demons that have significant influence over our world. And we ought to take note of this. It is such an influence that we don't even realize what is going on. And that makes them all the more crafty. Paul says that this influence then is now at, the work, now at work in the sons of disobedience. So again, there's this family language. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we looked at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. In verse 5, uh, Paul said that God the Father predestined us for adoption as sons through Christ Jesus. And so here Paul reminds us that every human being on the planet is a member of only one or two families being adopted by God the Father or our children of Satan. By default, we are children of Satan. Only by a miraculous and purposeful work of grace are we able to be adopted and brought into God's family. Don't buy into the lie that everyone is God's child. It's not true. Jesus plainly says that in the gospel. That's why he went on to say in verse 3, among whom we all once lived. The third way that our transgressions and sins are played out, Paul writes, is in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So because we are sinners by nature and by choice, we don't always need demonic influence to think, act, and say the things that we do. It's just who we are. We are inclined to our passions and our desires. And unless we're redeemed, we're in bondage to the passions of our flesh. The only true freedom that we have without the grace of God is to pursue those sinful inclinations. Now Paul rounds this out by saying that because we're trespassers and sinners by nature and choice, that we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now that doesn't mean that, uh, that we were wrathful and angry and out there creating chaos and havoc. 
Hell is filled with a lot of people who were very cordial and polite and nice. To be by nature children of wrath then means that in our fallen moral state, we were destined for God's judgment. The sinfulness of man is universal and deserving of hell. Now, I don't know about you, but that's pretty bad news. It's what it means to be spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. Though we walk and sleep and talk and eat without the intervention of, intervention of God, we are bound for hell. It's a helpful reminder when we're tempted to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. None of us is born good. This was you. This was me. This might be some of you now, but it doesn't have to be. Paul goes on to encourage us in the second point today is that we should recount God's intervention. Recount God's Intervention, recount, to, to recall, to tell yourself over and over again. Verse 4, Paul lays out perhaps the most hope-filled two words together anywhere in the Bible. He says, but God. It's not the only place that he says it in the New Testament. He says it a lot. And whenever he writes, but God, it is always a contrast to something really bad, but also how good God is. I once had a friend that encouraged me to have a sermon series called Big Butts of the Bible, but I don't think that that would necessarily be taken the correct way. There's a lot of these but gods. So I think I'm just going to stick to this, that we ought to recount God's intervention. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So spiritually speaking, friends, we were corpses at the bottom of the sea, rotting day by day because of our iniquities. But God, being rich in mercy, Paul alludes to the riches of God in, in various ways six times throughout the letter of Ephesians. There's only six chapters. So for him, God's wealth is very, very important. And here he's saying that God is wealthy in mercy. It's a description of his character. It is his love and his mercy that compelled him to do something for us. Because of his mercy and his love, he reached down to the bottom of the sea, brought us back to shore, and breathed life into our dead lungs. This isn't an isolated thing. This is deeply related to how God raised Christ from the dead. Because Christ died and rose, we who have been dead have now been raised with him. This is our union with, with Christ that we now share. His death is our death. His life, our life, his resurrection, our resurrection. This is what Paul means when he constantly says in Ephesians that we are in Christ. 
unless we think we had anything to do with this resurrection, Paul makes sure that we understand yet again that we were dead. And dead people don't contribute anything to being raised from the dead. That's why Paul gives us a little bit of a preview here in verse 5 on where he's going to go. By grace you have been saved. The salvation from the deadly life that we lived before is what we're saved from. It's God's grace. It's God's undeserved favor that he put us on a spiritual AED and zapped us back to life. And we did nothing to supply or add to God's work except breathe that air, which if I'm correct from my classes in biology, breathing is an involuntary part of life. You can't, I mean, maybe you can hold your breath for a little while, but it's involuntary. It's, 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 it's who you are. It's what you do. So whereas Paul says here, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ, verse 6, and raised us up with him and seated us in the heavenly places. So not only were we spiritually resurrected with him in the past, but Paul says that we now reign with him in the heavenly places that he alluded to back in chapter 1, verse 3. The demons no longer have control over us. The world that we talked about can have influence, but we have the ability now to say no. The flesh that so kept us in bondage to those things that we desired and, and, and lusted after. There's now victory. Do we still struggle with sin? Oh yeah, absolutely. Do we still have the potential of making shipwreck of our lives? Yes and yes. We might still fight the battle, but because we are in Christ, the battle is already won. Victory is ours. Now, how does this work? Imagine with me you're on a soccer team. Regulation's done. It's tied. It's to the point now where it's actually a shootout. You know what a shootout is. It's that one person and the goalie, and they you know, try to get that, that last second uh, um, goal in order to win. Who are you going to send out on your team to shoot it? Your best player, right? So you send him out there, uh, and he goes out there, and he goes to the penalty line. He controls the ball. He dekes out the goalie. He kicks it in. He gets the goal and wins. Who won that game? Well, in one sense, he did, right? He is the hero. He is the one who fooled the goalie to score the winning goal. He gets the glory. He gets the highlight reel. He is the one that gets the praise. But who won the game? The team, right? Because the team is united with him, he did the work. They share in the victory. What about the, the audience? Are the fans, did they win? You bet. There is a unity that they have with this team. And because this one hero did this on his own without any help, he has secured victory for them all. And just as we are in Christ, he is the kicker who scored the winning goal. He gets the fame. He gets the glory. He gets the highlight reel. He gets the praise. We stood on the sideline helpless 
or in the crowd, but yet through faith in Him, we share in that victory. His victory is all of our victory. So we have this present reality in light of past actions of God the Father through God the Son according to the power of the Holy Spirit. Now in verse 7 here, Paul gives us the reason why God did all of this. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches, there's that word again, of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Our world, our cultural climate does not look on the gospel as beautiful. To the world, even the idea of of sin and moral corruption is judgmental and harsh and foolish. However, God saves some of us now so that when the day comes, that he rights all the wrongs and that he restores all brokenness and ushers in his kingdom in its fullness. Those who spent their lives scorning the grace of God will see through us the riches of his immeasurable grace toward us as people in Christ. Our union with Christ will be put on display for all of the universe to see. And those who rejected that will look upon that and see what they had missed and spend an eternity dwelling on it. And those whom God saved will see and glory in the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in, there's that word again, Christ Jesus. So friends, this is God's intervention. You and I were dead. There's no spirit, there's no brain activity. There's no heartbeat, no pulse, but God in Christ made us alive together with him. This is worth getting up for every morning. This is worth telling the world about. This is worth rehearsing from now through eternity. This is the gospel, and it is ours in Christ Jesus. So we need to recount God's goodness to us in that. But third, we should rehearse the gospel's implications, what it means for us. If you were to come to my office during the week, Uh, you would most likely see a planner on my desk open. And on the day that it currently is, you'll see that I probably have two columns. On the left, it's all those things that I need to get done that day or hope to get done. On the right, it's all of my appointments, uh, the things that I have going on that day, meetings or, you know, whatever it is, uh, kids' sports activities that I need to be at. And I do that because I'm a forgetful person. I can't remember all of these things. I need to write them down and I need to, to cross them off. And if you're one of those person who li- people who likes lists, doesn't it feel good to cross something off? Man, I've tried the digital kind before. Clicking a button is not as fun as crossing off a word. The old way is oftentimes the better way of doing it. But perhaps you're not like me. Perhaps you never needed to keep a schedule or a planner uh, because, you know, it's all upstairs. 
But chances are, there's something that you need to do every hour of every day that you simply forget to do. And that is to remind yourself of the gospel. To remind yourself of the goodness of what Jesus has done for you. We face pressures and temptations and, and life situations and just some of us just see yuckiness day in and day out. And we need the reminder of the gospel of what he has done. We need to know who God is, who we were, and now who we are in Christ. Keeping those things in mind will keep us from so much trouble and so much pain in life. It's why the ancient Jews, if you look back in the Old Testament, they were constantly told, remember the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who took you out of slavery, who did this, who did that. Remember, remember, remember. Put up stones of remembrance. Write it on your walls. Write it on your whatever. Because they're just like us. Forgetful. And so here now, in verses 8 and 9, Paul gives us this little pithy statement that encompasses everything he's set up to this point. And maybe you haven't memorized. Maybe you as a child memorized uh, these two verses in Awana or uh, Worthy Birds or whatever a lot of these minist different ministries are. He writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Read that again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. If you are in Christ, how is it that you were saved? It's by grace. It's very important here. That Paul wants us to see that we are not saved by faith. We're saved by grace through faith. Faith is the result that grace creates. And this might be new to some of us here, but keep in mind that this entire section again is revolving around the fact that we were dead. Unable to revive ourselves, yet God made us alive. If we were to say that it was our faith that saved us, it's as if we were saying that we were dead, and in that deadness we, we came to our senses, we trusted in Christ, and re then received grace. There's two problems with that. It undermines Paul's arguments about being dead, and it undercuts the seriousness of sin. Unless I am mistaken, there is no spectrum of deadness. Regardless of how many times you've seen the princess bride, someone isn't mostly dead. They're either dead or they're dead. There's no spectrum with it. And I've done a lot of funerals. And I've yet to see someone resurrect themselves. I've talked to a few doctors, sort of tongue-in-cheek about this, but, but it's the truth. Doc, in, in, in the ER, have you ever seen a guy that flatlines, grab those shocker things, throw the gel on it, rub them together, and tell everybody to clear and shock themselves? 
I haven't had one doctor yet tell me that they've actually seen that or read it in a medical journal or seen it on YouTube or anything like that. Why? Well, for one, you wouldn't do that to someone that's alive. But two, people that are flatlined can't do that for themselves. They are dependent on external intervention. And so because we were spiritually dead, we couldn't muster anything up to do anything about it. Grace had to come first, had to quicken our hearts and provide faith. Second, to say that we are saved by faith or that faith precedes grace is then to make faith a work. So if we were to come and say, well, God, I have, I have faith, well, what is he now obligated to do? Give you grace. But if you're obligated to do something, that's not grace. That is a debt you owe. It's like if you were a worker and you worked 40 hours a week. Your boss doesn't give you his pay, your paycheck because he's being gracious to you. He's giving you your paycheck because he owes it to you. You work and then you get that. And as we continue to look at this uh, passage, notice that Paul continues to drive home this point. Look at verse 8. This is not your own doing. And the question is, what is the word this? Is it grace that's not our own doing? Is it faith that is not our own doing? Well, I mean, if we were to look at the structure of Paul's argument, verse 8 actually leads us to see that all of this the salvation and how it happens. That is all God's work. Nothing that we contribute to it. All of salvation, Paul says here, is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Not because of anything that we could do or that we've done. Theologian Stephen Lawson put it this way. The central truth of God's saving grace is succinctly stated in the assertion Salvation is of the Lord. The strong declaration means that every aspect of man's salvation is from God and is entirely dependent on God. The only contribution that we make is the sin that was laid upon Christ Jesus at the cross. From start to finish, salvation is of the Lord alone. So when we get a firm grasp that we bring nothing to the table, we finally now see the reason plainly in verse 9, so that no one may boast. If there is even a sliver of something that we could contribute to our salvation, it would be reason to boast. If we were, uh, it is only when we see that we're totally poor and in debt that we can only see the riches of his mercy and his grace to us. But it's not as if there's not a place for works. It's not as if we're saved to put our lawn chairs in the front yard and simply just wait for the second coming. We have work to do. There's a new way that we are to walk. And it contrasts that verse, uh, that those first couple of verses in which we used to walk. He gives us a new way. Look at verse 10. For we are his worksmanship, workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
You know, as Americans, we prize this idea of the self-made man, of the uh, rags-to-riches story, the, the, the rugged individualism. But we who are in Christ are not self-made. Paul tells us that we are God's workmanship. He creates us new. And this word that Paul uses for workmanship is one of my favorite Greek words. Not that I'm a Greek scholar. Uh, I probably do more damage than good looking at the Greek, but this one word I love. It is the Greek word poiema. It is the word from which we get our word poem. It refers to a, a beautiful creation, something that you would see at an art gallery. It, it's, it's, a, it's a masterpiece. And, and so understand here that Paul is saying that when we are in Christ, we are God's masterpiece. He's like a Rembrandt or a Monet or a Michelangelo just painting his beauty on our lives. It's not a physical thing. He's not in the business of setting you up with Botox or getting you the latest trend of you know, weight loss activities. He is here making you into a spiritual piece of art. And you might ask, well, how can that be? Man, I've got a past. I've done some really, really dark things in my life. Some really bad things have happened to me in my life. I've messed up and I am messed up. So how does that work? Paul says that he rescued us to be a masterpiece of making God look good. Now think about this. There are some of us in this room that have gone through some really tough stuff in life. Some of the things you've done or experienced is very hurtful or uh, harmful for you. And what kind of a spiritual painting is God making in your life? When he takes you from a life like that and adopts you into his family, and you can show the world that you are not the person that you were back in high school. You're not the person you were in junior high. You're not the person that you were two weeks ago or two months ago or two years ago or whatever it is. You are a new creation. How encouraging is it for us to hear stories about people's lives and how God has raised them from the dead or people that have suffered deep trauma that, is, that are experiencing healing because of the gospel. Those stories in your story is meant to hang on the wall of God's museum as a masterpiece of his glory and his grace so that people can look at that and say, Man, God is good. Look at those brush strokes that he did there. Look at his ingenuity. God is good. You are the poema of God, created in Christ Jesus. There's that term again. For good works, for making God look good. Doesn't mean we earn favor with God. These are the results of God's good to, goodness to us. They've been planned before the foundation of the world uh, when it says, to which God prepared beforehand. Friends, that is the gospel. We walked, made our lifestyle in sin and darkness, and God rescued us in Christ Jesus. And now we are to walk in a new way 
a way of good works for His glory. This gospel here is packed with devastating news about our natural condition and our inability to do anything about it. But that terrible news is overshadowed by the reality of the greatest news in the world, that we can be saved, redeemed, forgiven, made new, restored, healed in Christ Jesus. And as we continue to pour out the foundation of our church, let's, by the mercy of God, walk together as the poema of God in the good works that God has prepared beforehand that we would walk in them so that our community, our state, our country, and our world can see the beauty of God and what he can do in their lives. Let's pray together.